Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. Hello everyone from DTC pod. Today we have Paul Vogi, co-founder of Arabora, which is a heaven, heavenly sparkling waters made from herb, fruits, and flowers. Is that right, Paul? Um, That's thank right. you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Great to meet you both. Yeah, you too, man. Um, so tell me where is, what is Arabora? Um, where are you guys at today? And, and tell me a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so Ourobora is, uh, you, you nailed it, it's a craft sparkling water made from herbs, fruits, and flowers. Uh, so we sell, I guess we now sell nine varieties of sparkling water, all with flavors you, you probably haven't seen in a sparkling water before. Our best seller is a cactus rose flavor, followed by lavender cucumber. So probably flavors you're familiar with from a different medium, but brought to sparkling water. Um, we launched this business 29 months ago. We sold our first can. Uh, we've been kind of off to the races ever since. Uh, we're in 2,800 retailers and then, of course, sold online. Wow. So, Paul, what, um, you know, that that's tremendous growth over the last 28 months to be, or, you know, in that many retailers um, as well as selling online and everything. So why don't you take us back a little bit to um, the inception of of the brand? How'd you get started? What was the inspo for Sparkling Water and how'd you get, how'd you kick things off? Sure, so I was working, uh, I'll back up way, probably farther back than you wanted to go. So I grew up in a, a home with a particularly health conscious mom um, that, you know, soda was not allowed. So she had myself and my four siblings hooked on sparkling water from a young age. And my wife, Maddie, was actually been, grew up in a very similar home with a similar mom. Um, so neither one of us drank much besides sparkling water. And throw us into the first couple of jobs after college. And uh, if you're familiar, there's usually a fully stocked fridge and a lot of these white collar jobs with, it's, you know, their incentive to make your job a little less sucky. They give you like sparkling water and chips and granola bars, et cetera. So we, we had kettle potato chips and Jenny's ice cream and Justin's peanut butter. And on Fridays, we had Sam Adams beer. And then we just had LaCroix sparkling water. And it felt weird to me that in that office, by far the most popular item was LaCroix in terms of units moved, like no question about it. But it was also probably by far the least enjoyed. So everyone's drinking it, but nobody's liking it. And it just felt like a very odd dichotomy. Uh, so we bought a soda stream, Maddie and I, and we started making weird flavors. We thought, what if we did... Yeah, what kettle did to potato chips? We did it to sparkling water. What if we use flavors that are unusual to this category? Um, that was in 2019. In the summer of 2019, I think we had 83 people try those flavors and kind of vote on their favorites. And by Thanksgiving of that year, we started selling cans to a couple of retailers and then it kind of snowballed and got going from there. So the beginning of it was a couple of sparkling water addicts that just weren't happy with the product and we wanted something different. 
That's really cool. In terms of, um, you know, being able to kind of frame how, how the inspiration of the story was, I know that's something I can relate to, especially with the LaCroix addiction. So hopefully, um, you know, I can jump on the Ouroboros train and, and put an end to that. But um, I guess the question I'd have, because a lot of, I've had a lot of friends, I've had, you know, people who have been like, oh, I want to start a CPG brand. I want to start whether it's, um, you know, in an alcohol segment or in a canned beverage segment, et cetera. But so what, what's it like? Like, how do you actually find someone to put like a beverage that you come up with and formulate into a can? Like, what does that first run look like? Where do you go? Who do you go to? Sure. So I, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go back and show you just how naive I was. So at the time I was living outside of Boulder, Colorado, and had a, had a totally separate job. Um, but we started asking local folks that were kind of in CPG businesses, hey, where do I find cans? Where do I find a co-packer? Where do we find a food scientist? Where can I find a guy to sell me lavender wholesale? You know, all the sorts of questions you ask when you're starting a sparkling water company. And I was amazed how helpful everyone was. Like, oh, this guy can help you. Oh, I have a cousin, I have a brother, et cetera. I now know I was living outside Boulder, Colorado, which would be like, you know, if you wanted to be a stockbroker living in Manhattan, like just like the perfect place, perfect time. And I had no idea. Now, of course, I know how foolish that was, but I thought, oh man, this is so easy. Everyone I know seems to be tangentially related to CPG. Of course they are. Um, so anyway, that was the beginning. For a sense of how easy we had it at the beginning, easy in quotes, our food scientist, our can manufacturer, and our co-packer we're all within a seven minute drive of one another outside of Boulder. So the first couple of production runs could not have been easier, truly. Like I'd, I'd fill my car and move on with my day. So that certainly helped. I would say if you were to your friend's point that wants to start a CPG company, it's certainly best to, if you have a product that you can manufacture yourself at the beginning, it opens up a lot of doors, you maintain a lot of margin, you get to know intimately, you know, which ingredients matter most, where where do you need to spend more to uh, make sure quality stays the same. So all of those sorts of things are important at the beginning. Uh, for us, I, I now know how difficult it is because now we have three co-packers and we're flying all over the country to do production runs. And is the water quality different? Is it the same? Are we filtering the same way? There's all these questions that, that come up as you get bigger and bigger. And so you started in, so you started it in Boulder, Arabora? Exactly. Yeah. So okay. te technically, yes, is the answer to that. We were living in Colorado and my wife, Maddie, and I were like, hey, it's relatively cheap to live in Colorado. Coloradans hate when you say that, but I'll say relative to New York and California where I've lived prior, it's relatively cheap. And I felt like, okay, let's try this sparkling water thing. If it doesn't work, we can still live on one income here in Colorado. Of course, uh, the world usually laughs at you. What is it? Like man, man plans, God laughs. Um Weeks after I quit that job, my wife Maddie got recruited from a headhunter for a job in California, in San Francisco. So very soon after launching the brand, we moved to the to the West Coast to Northern California, which honestly is a much better market to launch a beverage in for mostly demographic reasons. But uh, today the brand is in San Francisco. But those I kept flying back to Colorado for production runs for the first sixty yeah. months. Yeah, there's a Boulder Food Group is out there. I just lived in Denver for a year, and uh, there's so many breweries. There's 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 a lot of access over there for for co-packing, etc. But and so, at which point did you outgrow that facility from Colorado, and what did it look like when you know now you say you have three different co-packers? At what point did you hit you know, and what did it look like to go from one co-packer to three? Sure. So yeah, uh, 
Co-manufacturing co can be like a, a, a tricky thing. So you never want to be anyone's smallest client. You never want to be anyone's largest client. So you're always kind of jumping from ship to ship to make sure you're not neglected, nor are you like so prized that if you get a better price, you're going to ruin their business. Um, for us, that looks like, hey, let's find somewhere more local. Most of our customers are in California. And if you know anything about shipping across the country, like the Rockies is uniquely an expensive place to ship in and out of, which now I know like intimately well, but at the time I didn't. Um, so we, we looked for a California local co-packer and found one that had a slightly better price and a slightly larger facility and slightly larger tanks. But we've since done that process a number of times in the middle of the country and on the East Coast. So all, all that to say, manufacturing anything is difficult. Like there's a reason why venture capitalists love software businesses. Like you make it once, you sell download rights and you call it a day. Um, manufacturing each and every can is like, needs to be the same as the one before it, but they're all distinctively different cans and anything can happen. So it, it makes it for a wild ride for sure. And so when you bought that first I guess when you know when you when you place that first MOQ, it seems like there was risk because you mentioned earlier, you know, you already had a worst case scenario plan. So it means that you bought without a PO in place first. Like, you know, yeah. how did you how did you secure that first MOQ purchase? Yeah, I mean, most CPG businesses do end up like there's a bit of a leap of faith, right? Like you need to buy the MOQ and hopefully you can find a co-packer that has a, as low an MOQ as possible. I'll say that the manufacturer we use in Boulder, he's still a friend. Uh, he's got to have the lowest MOQ. I, in fact, if you're listening to this and you have a beverage, shoot me a note, Paul at Ouroboros, I'll give you his contact. But the quick answer is we actually made a thousand cans before a trade show in October of 2019. So I, I was so naive that I asked this co-packer, hey, could you do a thousand cans for us? And he's like, you know, you're like 39,000 short from my MOQ, um, which even then 40,000 is pretty low for MOQs in this space. He said, but, you know, you seem like a nice guy. You can use our like machinery. So literally the, the day of the trade show, the trade show is that evening. I was like with a 16 year old and we were like canning things off the line and getting them into boxes. So at one point there were a thousand cans of Ouroboros in the world and they were all in my rental car in Colorado. And Luckily at that trade show, we got really good feedback. And I kind of thought, hey, if this goes well, I'll swipe my credit card, we'll do a production run in a few weeks. If it doesn't, you know, I'll update my resume and try something else. Um, fortunately, we got a really great response, including from a buyer from Whole Foods who we met the next day, dropped off samples. So that, that was still no PO in hand to your point, Ramon, but it gave me a little more confidence. Like, okay, I'm not just telling myself stories. People like this product. Paul, that's really that's really cool in terms of just putting it in in a context that I think anyone can understand when like trying to launch launch into a, a CPG business. And obviously, you know, when you, when you're starting out, maybe maybe you can't fulfill a, a forty thousand can order. But again, like at the end of the day, these are people businesses, and a lot of the brands that we've even talked to that got their start in CPG, it's about like you know putting yourself out there, um, building out a couple different relationships. And if you get the right one and you get your shot and you can deliver a good product, you're going to be, you're going to be in good shape. So I, I think that's just really, really cool to hear. Um, so then why don't you walk me through what happens next? So you've got, you've done the trade show, right? You've done your run of your first thousand cans. Um, you know, what comes next? Are you, are you scaling up another run of that same flavor? Are you iterating on that flavor at all? Like how big's your next order? Where are you going from there? Yeah, I would say very quickly it becomes, you know, not 
uh, most of these businesses just like very quickly just become sales and marketing businesses. Like you need to hit the streets, pound some pavement and get into stores. So for us, yeah, I was in San Francisco. I, I drive a, a Subaru. I can fit exactly 111 cases of Ourobora in the Subaru if no one else is in there with me and driving around the city, delivering orders to stores. So first harassing managers, harassing store uh, category managers, store owners, cashiers, et cetera. Hey, can I put my drink in your store? And this is before I knew like, What's the natural channel? What's the conventional channel? What's the convenience store? Just to me, if they sold drinks, like I was hitting them up and asking them to buy my sparkling water. And of course, a lot of them were like, hey man, we everything in this store we get from Coke and Pepsi. Like get out, we have no interest in you. Um, so very quickly, I kind of learned, okay, where are the natural stores worth going, going at, uh, after? In San Francisco, you know, you can get a certain book of accounts. For us, it was like 45 or 50. And then take that to a local distributor and say, hey, right now I'm distributing to these stores Monday through Friday. You can now do it. Here it is, which was a huge help. The, the name of the distributor in San Francisco for us was Rock Island. They were like our first local distribution play. And very soon thereafter, we got our first national distributor, which doesn't mean that we were distributed nationally. Just we had done the paperwork. And should we get any big grocery stores, we now had some way to fulfill orders. So that was the beginning in terms of retail is just pounding pavement, getting yeses as often as we could, and honestly annoying a lot of people until they bought the product. And what was the, what, so what was the first flavor you guys were going with? And, and when, when you were, yeah. And, and when you were go selling into those first couple stores and those first orders, were you just one skew at that point? Or had you, you know, did you have like a variety pack or, or, or what did it look like? Yeah, so we, we sell single-serve cans. So we launched with five flavors. It was lemongrass, coconut, peppermint, watermelon, lavender, cucumber, basil, berry, and cactus rose, which I list them in that order because that's actually the order we made the flavors to. And it's the orders I bought the UPC codes in. And hilariously, my favorite, the flavor we made first, lemongrass, coconut, is actually our worst seller. And the flavor we made last is a bit of a curveball, cactus rose. Yeah, Ramon's drinking lemongrass, coconut. The flavor we made last, cactus rose, is actually our best seller. So Proves that you don't often know what people are going to resonate with. Um, but yes, yeah, so we started with those five SKUs. Obviously, you're lucky to get five SKUs on a new shelf. Usually it was like stores asking, what's your three best? Which at the beginning, a bit of a humorous anecdote. Like there was a day where it was probably 10 stores in a row saying, hey, I'll buy your three best. I'll buy your three best. Now, I didn't know what would be our three best yet. So when I did production runs, I was just like, okay, we'll do 20% this SKU, 20% that SKU, 20% that SKU. Very soon thereafter, I realized what our best SKU was. But the first six months... I would just rotate. So I'd tell stores like, hey, these three are our best. And then I'd tell the next store a different three are our best, just so I could keep it somewhat even and not have anything too lopsided. Now, obviously, our three best is very clearly our three best, but uh, and we manufacture, you know, multiple SKUs over the course of the week. So, so on that note, like, you know, you mentioned that you were sort of, and for people that might not understand, you were mentioning you're rotating sort of all the flavors to kind of keep the volume going simultaneously for all SKUs. Yes. Why is that? Like, what is the challenge of pushing one skew or, you know, top three? Like, wh wh why, why was it important to push volume simultaneously throughout all skews? Sure. So at the beginning, you know, you're usually when, a, I think Blaine mentioned an MOQ, a minimum order quantity for a co-packer, generally it's by skew. So they'll say like, hey, you need to, I'm making this number up, but you need to do 40,000 cans of each skew. So I wanted them all to sell out at the same time 
such that we could then do one big order and buy them all at the same time. But if, if we sold everyone our bestseller, Cactus Rose, as truly the bestseller, I'd be all out of Cactus Rose and everyone would be pissed at me for weeks until we could get more line time. So my goal was, hey, let's rotate them such that everything runs out at the same time. And then we could do one big production run, one big credit card swipe and move on. Well, let's talk a little bit about funding in the early days. It sounds like, you know, those first couple runs were probably bootstrapped. But at what point did you look at saying like, okay, we got something here. Let's think about different ways we can like capitalize and and add some juice to the business. Sure. So I I am from a very large Greek family, uh, which I tell you just because the the first $200,000 we raised was from like 11 blood relatives. So brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, parents, etc. Um, that was the beginning. And, and honestly, I think most entrepreneurs have some version of that. I, I'm incredibly fortunate in that I'm actually the youngest of those 12 cousins. So 11 of them are like out there, you know, making salaries and willing to like, yeah, sure. My youngest cousin wants $5,000. I'll write him a check, which is huge. I mean, who would write any of their cousins $5,000? I don't know that. I'm glad it was me, not the reverse, because I don't know what I would have said. So uh, I'll say that continue to motivate me to this day. I don't want Thanksgiving to be super awkward. Um, but that was the beginning after we got into, it was probably like 400 or 500 stores, we were able to go out and do a more formal seed round and raise, I think it was about $550,000. It was from a lot of angel investors, a couple of very small funds. Um, and then we've since, from the beginning, we've since raised about $5 million. But uh, it's been several, there's a joke in CPG that you're always raising money. So it started with family and friends and then moved it on to angel investors. Now it's moved it's moved on to venture capital funds. And um, for for the people who aren't who who may not be familiar, you guys did make a uh, an appearance on Shark Tank. Is that right? We did. Yeah. So we uh, where does this story even start? Um, what stage were you at for that? So we we uh, sold that first can Thanksgiving of 2019. Obviously, COVID was March of 2020. A couple weeks after the COVID lockdown, it's probably the first week of April. I got an email. So at this point, we're in fewer than 50 stores. I got an email uh, from someone claiming to be a Shark Tank casting director, which obviously I just thought was a friend during lockdown with too much time on his hands, just, you know, messing with me. Um, Sure enough, ended up being a real Shark Tank person. They were recruiting for the upcoming season. I did like a bunch of application things. My wife, Mandy, and I filmed a video. We sent in the video and we waited and waited and waited. And then in July of that summer, we'd almost forgotten. They said, hey, can you come out to Las Vegas in two weeks? We're going to film Shark Tank. So... By the time we actually filmed Ramon, I bet we were in 500 stores, but for the, we probably went from 50 to 500 stores in the six months in between or five months in between us talking. So it was definitely a big growth period, which was great. So we filmed in August of 2020. Uh, if you've talked to anyone that was on that season, like it was totally locked down. So they, they recreated the set inside the Venetian. Every entrepreneur was quarantined for 10 days. Like they would knock on your hotel room and deliver food, but you weren't allowed to like interface with the person delivering it. So it was, it was truly like, uh, you know, I can't really call it a prison. It was the Venetian, but prison-like and that you're not leaving the room or getting fresh air. Uh, and then 10 days later, a producer knocked on the door and said, all right, like we're just going to throw you into the lion's den here. You can, you can talk to some high-powered billionaires with big opinions. So fortunately, we weren't solo. Like it was both myself and Maddie in there. I imagine if I was a solo entrepreneur, I would have just gone crazy over the course of those 10 days. But it was a wild experience. It's like, what was that show recently that, um, oh man, it was that really famous show that was just on Netflix that everyone watched that 
you you would win all the money or you would get killed on the game. Oh, squid game. <laughs> yeah, so it's like it's like you're in this room, you're starving, you're going crazy, um, and the other side of this is potential success that could change your life. So you went in there, and then did you guys do a deal or did you not? We did. So one, I'll say that's a very funny comparison to Squid Game. I'll say uh, what what certainly made it high stakes, not as high stakes as Squid Game, but high stakes was normally I think Shark Tank just flies you out. I think they give you like free tickets to Disneyland. You do your pitch, they fly you home. This one was, oh, they're going to get 10 days of our August while we're locked in a hotel. Like we better get a deal because they overfilm. So you don't necessarily, if you're not entertaining or you don't do well, you don't make the show. And all of a sudden you spent all this money to make the set. You've driven out. You spent 10 days in a hotel room eating, you know, hotel food and you don't make the show, which side note on the food, I've now probably connected with like, 10 or 11 folks that also filmed that same season 12. And it, it was a rotating menu. So it was like every three days it repeated. And then there was a 10 pound meatball on the menu. And the number of calls I've had that start with like, man, how about that 10 pound meatball? Because the truth was, it was probably the best thing that we had of the like six rotating meals. But anyway, all that to say, yes, we did get a deal on the show. It was with Robert Hershevik. If you're familiar with the show, he's the friendly Canadian that loves pets. If you're not, He's a Canadian that likes pets. I've read, um, I've read like um, two of his books. I really love that guy. Oh yeah, he's a very friendly guy. Yeah. So all, all I have to say, the show was great. It was a total whirlwind. Uh, there was a bit of like banter back and forth during the deal making process, but we got a deal done. And yeah, we walked out knowing, okay, this is going to air. We got our, you know, it wasn't uh, totally humiliating. We didn't get destroyed. Neither of us started crying. So it was a big win. That's amazing. And then, so after you do the deal, um, you know, what, what's, what's the next step? Is it just business as usual? I know you guys were kind of on a tear between the point where you first got the Shark Tank invite to the time you filmed. So was this something at that point that like, was this really, you know, a game changer for the business in terms of like the capital ad and all that kind of stuff? Or were you just, were you guys just, uh, you know, kind of continuing on the same trajectory with like a nice little bump in terms of exposure and connections and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there was about a five month period in between filming and airing. So we filmed in August of 2020 and aired in January of 2021. So in those five months, I mean, you sign like a mountain of paperwork saying you, you won't tell anyone you're on the show. Um, speaking of that large Greek family, actually my, my father told a couple of my cousins and I was like, so worried, like, Oh my gosh, we have too many cousins for you to tell any of them. Like that's like 90 people. You know, there's like uh, 40 zip codes represented there. Anyway, all that to say, for five months, we didn't tell anybody. And then finally, it aired in January. I would say the biggest help was, yeah, a bunch of people on the internet that came and bought the product or put their email in for a discount code. And now we can continue to remarket to them our existing products. Probably the second biggest help was retailers love talking about it. So, you know, there's two or three reruns every year retailers, you know, buyers are like kind of uh, forced to buy things that are low risk. There's a reason you go to grocery stores today. Like it feels like celebrity faces are everywhere because that's low risk. If Wayne The Rock Johnson wants to sell them a new product, they're going to buy it because they can put his face on the shelf. Similarly, in a very small, small, small way, okay, got it. This new product has two or three reruns to a couple million people every year. This product is going to move at least somewhat. So they like talking about it and it de-risks the purchase of a new product. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's like it's like the social proof of the B2B world. And and so is that what kick started 
your guys' DDC initiative? Because it seems you went really hard on retail for, you know, you you beat that up, you know, all the way through. And then it seems like this, was this it for DDC? Yeah. I mean, if, if you asked me, gosh, when we were in 2020 before COVID, like January of 2020, I probably would have been like, oh, there's no, like, we shouldn't even have credit card possibility on our website. No one's going to buy a 10 pound box of water that I ship across the country. I would have just laughed at the idea of a direct to consumer sparkling water company. Obviously I was very wrong and COVID accelerated, you know, everything in a big way. Um, so certainly, so all that to say in March of 2020, we like changed our website. I was probably shipping, I don't know, 10, 20 boxes a week, all on the same day. I just drive down to the post office then right at the end of 2020, kind of after we filmed for Shark Tank, but before it aired, kind of knew like, okay, we probably should like start buying ads. I guess that's a thing. So I took like a quick course on how to do a Facebook ad and then eventually found like a guru to help us out and getting some top of funnel ads, which obviously now I look back after iOS 14 and I think, ah, why wasn't I putting every dollar we had into advertisements before Apple ruined everything? But anyway, quick answer is Shark Tank was the huge catalyst to D2C. I mean, it was by far our best month uh, on the internet at that point and gave us this huge treasure trove of emails, started us off like our email marketing. A lot of our bottom of funnel marketing was with Shark Tank in mind. So yeah, it was kind of the beginning of the D2C world. And now D2C is like proudly, you know, 30-ish percent of our revenue. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's pretty serious for uh, for like you were saying in terms of the type of business that you you guys are to make up 30% being able to sell it online. That's incredible. So what what do you think accounts for that? Obviously, you have the bunch bump, you have loyal people who like your product. Are you seeing a lot in terms of like, you know, is there a subscription option? Are these repeat orders? Like what what makes it get to 30%? Yeah, a couple of things. So one, yes, we, we do have hardcore fans that are subscribers. And just by nature of the fact that we are not sold everywhere, um, means that they, okay, if we want to buy it, you can buy it from us online and we'll ship it to you. Now, obviously our retail team is like kind of counteracting against our online team because yeah, we want to eventually be able to buy this product anywhere. As a result, that had us thinking, okay, we started this this company because Maddie and I were tired of conventional sparkling water flavors. Ironically, we've now been selling these products for two and a half years. Some of our hardcore fans are tired of our flavors so we wanted to create new flavors for them. So subscription is one piece of it. And probably most recently, and it's kind of become like the pillar of our online uh, game is limited edition flavors. So if you have an ice cream parlor near your house, that's kind of a third wave. I'll say if you're on the East Coast, Van Leeuwen's on the West Coast, Salt and Straw, in the middle of the country, Jetties, you'll know that they have really wild, interesting flavors that rotate and then a couple of kind of mainstays that stay there all the time. And if the wild, whimsical flavors do a really good job, they work their way into the permanent set. Similarly, we want to have core flavors that you can always find on our website 12 months a year and then limited seasonal varieties that come out every other month. So is that also a way for you guys to like quickly iterate and and test out flavors, being able to like, because you know, I, well, how many, how many plate, how many locations or like 3PL facilities do you have to be able to like launch a flavor quick? Is it just one location where you're able to like send everything from out online or is there a logistical component of launching several flavors at the same time? Yeah. It, uh, you know, any organization you have like salespeople saying, this is a great idea. And then you have ops people saying like, almost impossible to execute. So I don't know, this is somewhat of a balance of those two things. Like 
Yeah, my, my knock on wood here, I would love in 2023 for us to have a monthly flavor, you know, 12 new flavors in 2023. This year, it'll be like seven or eight. Um, so there is a logistics component of we manufacture the flavor and then we quickly get it to two 3PL facilities in Las Vegas and in Baltimore, such that we can get kind of within two days of everybody. But these are great for the reason you just said of like, hey, we can test R&D really quickly. We can see what our, our favorite fans think of our new flavors. How does it compare to kind of the ones that are already in retail? And then finally, more and more retailers are asking about this data. Like, hey, your elderflower grapefruit flavor, how did it sell online? Which I'll say, I tried to pitch retailers on that like the summer of 2020 and they would just laugh at me. They're like, I don't care about your Shopify website. Like get this out of here. And now the opposite has happened where the same retailers are like, hey, tell us about your Shopify data. And I, oh, I'm like so tempted to be like, really? Two years ago, you laughed at me when I asked about that. But okay, that's interesting. So the best part, I'll, I'll say on the elderflower grapefruit, and this was not Sprouts. So the retail I was just referring to was not Sprouts. We're launching nationally with Sprouts on elderflower grapefruit starting in two weeks. That started on the internet. We just made 3,000 cases for our hardcore fans. It sold out really fast. Folks were really excited about it. And we shared that data with Sprouts and they were really excited. They liked the flavor, of course, too. Uh, and we hope to do that same thing in the future. Iterate a flavor online, introduce it to a retailer, give them an exclusive. And I think it's also really great in terms of, like you were saying, your fans, right? If, if they're following what you guys are doing online, they're going to get first access to the new flavors. Um, and rather than have to wait and like see it in their local grocery store, they're going to be, if they're tuned into what you guys are doing, they're getting the fastest uh, updates and the freshest flavors uh, as soon as they drop. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. The, the drop model is fun, not just because you sell out and people get excited. It's honestly, it, it, uh, you know by definition that it's your most excited customers buying the product because you only made so many cases and they got it and they bought it twice in that month period that it was for sale and they filled out a survey and let you know what they think. So even though we started this because like I wanted different flavors, the truth is now we want our community now to make the best flavors and we'll bring them to retail. Sweet. Um, Paul, one thing I'm actually curious about, if you had to look at it from like the perspective of margins in terms of like the cost, it it costs you guys to ship and sell a, you know, a package of a, like a heavyweight sort of good direct to consumer versus like the margin that's going to be taken by sell, selling through a retailer. Like, how do you guys think about it? What does it like roughly break down to um, for people who might be thinking about how to like where they should be focusing and where they're like making margin versus volume? Yeah. So there are, uh, I have learned entrepreneurs have like little tricks to make their margins look better. So I, I, I'm going to say this like transparently of if you're selling a product that's heavy, like I'll say our 12 pack, a, a box with 12 cans in it weighs roughly 10 pounds. That 10 pound box on the internet, I can get a much higher gross margin than I can to retail. Now, the contribution margin on the internet is so much lower because freight as it pertains to retail ends up above the line and shipping as it pertains to e-com ends up below the line. So you'll find many a D2C entrepreneur that likes bragging about their huge 70, 80% gross margin. And the truth is you have to ask them, okay, What's it cost you to actually get that to my doorstep? Throw in what is your cost to acquire a customer? And the truth is, if I had to start this all over again, and maybe this isn't something you want to hear in your, your podcast about D2C, I would never do D2C. If not for pre-iOS 14 email addresses, 
and Shark Tank, we would just be a retail-focused brand. Now, what's been awesome about those two things is, yeah, it led us to start this limited time flavor. I think it's a much better way to have like deep emotional connections with consumers. So I'm not mad about it at all. I'm, re I'm really excited about it. But if I was starting today in 2022, I would probably realize, hey, a 10-pound box, it's really hard to put a dollar back in your pocket of the internet. Yeah, and, and I think a, a big portion of that too, it, it all comes down to the type of product you're selling, right? So like you guys, like you're saying, like a 12 can thing cost or is, is 10 pounds. Like that's, you know, it yeah. makes all the sense in the world why you're going to get more efficiency in terms of oh, selling. I, I, have a, I have a friend that sells matcha and I give him so much flack. I mean, he's selling just powder. I'm like, that's a perfect D2C business. He sells powder. He only uses the postal service. It's never more than $5. Perfect. So in, from a from a product development standpoint, I know you guys do a, a, a ton in terms of flavors down the line. It doesn't have to be now. Are, is there anything you're thinking in terms of like introducing new types of things that go beyond just the can? Like, is this something that you could do, like add flavor to water, make at home powder, et cetera? Like, is there anything yeah. you've kind of thought of, about d down the line? So, yeah, a couple of things. So one. Uh, I didn't know this going in again. I was naive. So water obviously is our biggest ingredient. Um, same thing if you're, if you're a coffee drinker or a beer drinker, this will be very evident to you, but water makes such a huge impact. You know, if I made you a cup of coffee in New York and then a cup of coffee in Boston and a cup of coffee in Chicago, just using local taps, they would taste wildly different. And your favorite coffee shop, no doubt has its own filtration system where it's choosing what minerals to keep or get rid of in that, that water. I say all that to say, Anytime we've tested out like a, hey, can we make our existing flavors with someone's sink? It, it varies so wildly, particularly with our herbal extract ingredients. Like we are uh, maybe too crazy about filtering of, hey, we want no microplastics, no PFAS, no fluoride. We can't have any sort of uh, inhibitant or changing of taste in the water. So that is one huge kind of X factor that it's hard to get around. Uh, the second thing I'd say is the reason we're interested in it is, you know, we are shipping this very heavy box. We're a very much a sustainable company. We purposely use aluminum cans. We're members of 1% for the planet. Uh, every one of our limited time drops is tied to an environmental charity. And yeah, it doesn't feel good to like ship a box across the country that you could just go pick up on the corner. So the biggest way we're trying to get more sustainable is honestly get more distribution, like, Nothing would bring me greater joy if our D2C business continues to drop year over year because our retail business is skyrocketing. Not that I hate D2C, but just, hey, if you're two blocks away from Ouroboros, don't buy it on the internet. Go two blocks. You can probably get a cheaper price too. The advantage... No, I was... Ramon, I was just going to say, but what I do like on your site is I love the uh, the hat and the branding. Like, I love it. So I, I was actually looking at it. I'm, I'm going to get a hat right now. <laughs> love that. I was actually, I was going to say, you have such an advantage, though, of having started with the retail, because now that you're at this level of the brand, you know what it takes for your sales team and your distribution partners to to push, you know, into more stores, etc. Had you had started out with DDC, and now you have to, like, go and, like, figure out the retail game or just, like, hire these, you know, sales experts or whatever. But you haven't really done that. Whereas, you know, you've packed your car to the fullest um, for until you push it into retail. It's like you've been in the grind. So now you can outsource that and delegate that better. For sure. Yeah, I'll say 
anytime I think I can truly delegate something, I've been wrong. So I'm still like very much involved in the, the retail sale and D2C sales for that matter. We have an awesome team. We made two really great hires on that front last year. Um, but it, it certainly, there's a lot more to learn with retail than I thought earlier. Like there is just, uh, there is both kind of textbook knowledge you have to learn about retail. And then I'll say like, uh, Lessons from the trenches I've since learned a couple of years in that people are not advertising. What what are some of those? What are some of the biggest takeaways that you've learned in, in terms of dealing with retail all these years? Uh, I think the biggest, if, if we're referring to your friends, Blaine, that want to launch a CPG business, like I, I uh, totally underestimated the chargebacks involved at retail. So, you know, it, I often joke like, hey, if someone's drinking an Ourobora and they slip in the aisle and they knock down a can of tomato puree, like I'm getting charged for that. That's what it feels sometimes. Like just the, the chargebacks from stores, from distributors, from retailers are, are just insane where you can mock it up and think, great, we're selling them $100 worth of sparkling water. We should get an invoice for $100 back. And usually it's like a $40, $50, $60 invoice back, which there's there's an opportunity to fight those invoices with these big distributors, but they purposely have very slow accounting teams and very difficult for you to fight the invoice. They know that they're dealing with small businesses that are here today, gone tomorrow. So that is for sure been the biggest learning is, okay, you need to watch your chargebacks like a hawk to make sure you get your money's worth. Maybe the, the friend of yours that wants to start that CPG business can start the dispute retail business to help the CPG brands clean that back. Hey, if, if they started that, they'd have probably a million dollars in ARR tomorrow. Yeah. So so basically you're saying for, for any um, supplier like you guys, you guys are responsible for any of the mishaps that happen, whether it's like a broken case in transport or in the aisle, someone knocks over, you guys assume the responsibility for that and you guys eat the cost as opposed to the um, your, your, your retailer. Exactly, always, always the brand's fault, yeah. No, that, that, that's, that's really important to know, especially as a, um, you know, an early stage business that, that can amount to, to a lot. Um, and, and also for anyone who's listening, who's a consumer, you know, ne next time think twice when, when you're in the aisle knocking cans over someone, someone's paying for that. And it's not the, it's not the, the grocery store. <laughs> you know what? Same thing on that front, since we're talking D to C. So I have been a consumer of Amazon, obviously, for a lot of years. And I'm always amazed, like, oh, my gosh, the, dis the like dispute process of getting a refund is so fast, you know, crazy fast. It's the reason they have such good customers. Well, it's fast because Amazon's not paying for that. I'm paying for that. Um, there was a, a really – there was a cold spell last year. You probably remember it was when, uh, it was when Ted Cruz went to Cancun. Um, there was a huge cold spell in Texas, and we had a couple of shipments really affected, including one at Amazon – Amazon shipped a bunch of these boxes. People were getting like just a box of ice to their doorstep or what used to be ice that had since thawed out. It was just a bunch of exploded cans. As you can imagine, like that's not our fault. We, we gave them the pallet and they were liquids. Amazon gave all those customers a refund and just billed us for all of the refunds. And that's just how it works. And you just, that's just the cost of doing business with Jeff Bezos, I suppose. Wow. So even, I mean, like... I in in my building for example amazon messes up my packages like every single day they're always lost um so so just so consumers know anytime you go say oh my package was lost it's the actual brand that yep. ends up paying for it in amazon that's just the cost of doing business with Amazon. exactly it trickles its way up to the brand and they pay whatever they actually don't just pay the cost of goods they pay the sorry guys i actually have a call from sprouts right now can i answer this on the air here What's go that? for it 
So what, you know, at what stage did you guys actually land Sprouts and what does it look like in terms of maintaining a relationship with a retailer um, of that scale? Yeah, so uh, the quick answer is we got into our first Sprouts store probably end of last summer, summer of 2021, um, maybe the middle of last summer. And they had a test and we did really well during the test. They said, great, our next nationwide launch is kind of the April of 2022. So we'll launch nationally at Sprouts in two weeks. Um, that was the buyer asking about that national launch. So I, that's why I stepped out of the room because some of that was sensitive. But um, yeah, all that to say, working to your question of like, what's it like working with a big national retailer? They rarely have your cell phone number. I'll say Sprouts has been an amazing partner where, yes, we have like exchanged cell phone calls. Um, so we're, we're really excited to, to get onto the shelf. I'm, I'm excited for you guys because I know you mentioned Texas earlier. I lived in Austin for like three years and I was just like everywhere I went to was like all choices of sparkling water. There's all these companies. And now in Miami, there, there's like none. So it's still really early in the game for, you know, sparkling water here in U.S. And, and you guys have you know, um, have a head start. Good. Well, coming to a Sprouts near you. Uh, yeah. we're Or a pop-up grocer where I got this one. That's right. That's right. <laughs> awesome. And then, Paul, my next question was going to be just in terms of like scale and how you think about growing a CPG business. So now you guys are in a whole bunch of, um, you know, retailers at the national scale, really growing. You've raised, you know, well, several million dollars. Um, at what point do you start thinking about like growing even bigger, you know, whether it's building your own manufacturing facilities or like, what are the next steps of a brand of your stature, um, in terms of like the growth in terms of, um, getting to that next stage? Yeah, for us. So for on the, on the retail side, I'll say there is kind of like a well-worn path in CPG where you want to really do well on the natural channel and then work your way into the conventional channel. Then you work your way into club, Costco, Sam's club, BJ's, et cetera. Um, and from there you're kind of everywhere. So for us, we're still on that first step of, we want to get huge, huge numbers in the natural channel, the whole foods, the sprouts of the world, um, small co-ops. I always say like if they sell a kind of, uh, oats in a barrel, it's like a perfect store for us. Um, the reason you have to be kind of like so temperamental about that is if you move too fast, you find, oh gosh, our velocity, the, the units per store per week that we're selling in every store isn't high enough. And now stores are pulling us from the shelves. So you need to just constantly be a hawk watching how well are we selling our products in the existing stores such that we're ready for new stores. So for us, that means, hey, let's start where we know consumers are more likely to try new products. Pop-up Grocer is a great example. Sprouts, Erewhon, Whole Foods, you, you probably know these stores. Uh, and then work our way to stores where, yeah, it's not as easy to be a new product, but consumers trade between. You know, The same consumer that's in Whole Foods is sometimes shopping at Kroger. Start with Whole Foods, then work your way up to Kroger. Got it. That, that makes a ton of sense. So what, um, you know, I know you're working on a whole bunch of flavors. You guys have done, a whole, you, you guys have net some national rollouts coming up. Uh, any, any other things on the, on the agenda for you guys uh, in 2022? Yeah, we have a few, a few exciting things. So one, uh, first and foremost was that, you know, new flavor program. So we 
just launched a lime cardamom flavor. It's the one I've been sipping during this interview. Uh, we have a different June limited time flavor, a different August one coming down the pipes. Actually, just after this meeting, I'm going to go taste some for August. Um, we have particularly, I, I'll tease this a little bit of like a month from now, we have like a secret menu launching where it's just for like our best consumers that have been loyal to us. We want them to try Rather than it being kind of like all dressed up like this, hey, this is a flavor ready to launch. We're going to take it back a step of like, hey, get into the test kitchen. Here are some crazy flavors. Should we make more of them or not? And just ship them to folks that uh, already have been with us a bunch. So on the D2C side, that's probably the most exciting thing. And on the retail side, I, I, I just referenced it, but tons of new store launches. So the one we're probably most excited about is Sprouts. We'll be launching in all 400 Sprouts stores here in 10 days. So yeah, those are, those are the exciting 2022 launches. Sweet. Well, well we're super pumped. Um, I think there's some sprouts near us. Are there any other retailers we can look out for these in, in where we are in Miami? Do you know off the top of your head? Sure. I used to know really well off the top of my head. We've grown too big for me to know off the top of my head. But I used to be like, oh, Whole you Foods. live in the zip code? It's that Yeah, yeah. But like Whole it's Foods like and stuff like that, right? So we're in a couple regions of Whole Foods. We're not in Whole Foods in the south, so you won't find us there. Uh we're in a couple of small co-ops in Miami. I have to remember the name of a few of them. Um, one of them has an amazing name. Let me see if I can quickly figure it out. Well, anyway, all that to say, yeah. Miami, not our best market. If you find yourself in New York soon, not yet. a ton of those stores. Love it. Um, well, anyway, Paul, just wanted to thank you for, for coming on and, and dropping some serious knowledge with us. Um, for listeners who are listening, um, I think they know where to find you. Definitely in some big chains uh, coming out soon. And by the time this episode is going to be live. Um, but in terms of connecting with you, where can they find you? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? Where Where's the, the company socials yeah. at? Just shout them all out. Sure. Your company socials are uh, Instagram is probably our most uh, frequent channel. I think it's just Drink Ora Bora. Um, you can find me, of course, on all those things, LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera, but the company is far more interesting than me. Um, so we're, we're always uh, pushing the line of what would be an appropriate thing for a food or beverage company to Instagram. And if the answer is no, we normally do it anyway. So find us there. Love it. Well, thanks for thanks for chatting and uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for, for you guys soon. Cool. Thanks, Thank guys. You, Great Paul. Thanks, guys.